Good morning. <clears throat> yeah, I really like the way Dan did announcements. Much better than what I had ready. <laughs> we have the privilege of looking at God's Word again today. <clears throat> and we, our text is in the second letter of Peter, chapter 1. And we'll be reading verses 16 to 21. Um, but before we get there, I, I need to explain what this message and next week's message will be about. This October 31st marks the 500th anniversary of what is called the Protestant Reformation. That date was picked because October 31st, 1517, was the day that a Catholic monk named Martin Luther nailed a piece of paper to the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany. The paper contained a list of 95 statements or theses that he wanted to debate with the academic scholars of the day. He took issue with or protested some of the practices of the church at that time. And that act set in motion a chain of events that led to a reformation in both the church and in Western civilization in Europe and then in America, which was the newfound land at the time. So what happened there 500 years ago is our heritage. It explains how we got where we are today as believers in an evangelical or Protestant church as opposed to Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox churches, and that's why we're going to devote our attention to it for two Sundays. But we preach Christ, not the Reformation. So what I hope to do today and next Sunday is preach on two key issues that were at the center of the Reformation, two questions that once they were answered, changed the world. And those two questions are these. Number one, who decides what is truth? And what must I do to be saved? Those are the two questions they had then. The second question is about how can I be forgiven my sins and receive eternal life? And that's going to be next week's message. The first question is about where do we go to get that answer? Who's got the authoritative word about who God is and our need for salvation and how we get it? Where can we go to get the supreme authority to answer that question for us. That's today's message. The answer the Reformers gave is that it's the Bible and the Bible alone that has the authority about God and the way of salvation because it is God's very words written for us. Uh, that has been called the doctrine of sola scriptura, which is Latin for scripture alone. And I want to uh, take you to a text that affirms this this morning in Second in Peter. And my hope is that by dwelling on it this morning, you will, you will be even more confident about what you have, hopefully a copy of in your house, in your hands, and in your heart. We, we want to have even more sure, assurity about this book and its authority, and its, and its ability to answer the big questions for us. Like, how mu what must I do to be saved? I want you to have great assurance in it. So would you follow with me as we read in God's Word from 2 Peter 1, 
For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. <laughs> so, Lord, what we're about to dive into and seek to understand has come from you. You have said it, thus says the Lord. And would you today make us even more sure of that? Would you show us the glory that Peter and James and John saw on the mountain when the cloud overshadowed them and the voice came saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Would you give us now two millennia removed from that the same kind of assurance that Peter had as he wrote these words from you? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, instead of starting in 1517, and the issues raised that raised the question of who decides the truth. We're going to start in the mid-60s A.D., first century, at the end of the Apostle Peter's life. Already in his day, people were already questioning, who is it that we should listen to? Who can tell us, really, the way of life? Who can, who can tell us anything authoritative about God? So we're going to look at Peter's answer that he gave and then after that, we're going to jump to 1517 and why they needed to answer that question again about who decides the truth. And then we'll jump to 2017 and how it applies to us now. So let me draw your attention to verse 16 and to the apostolic message that Peter preached. The apostolic message. Peter's writing this letter as an apostle of Jesus Christ. That comes from verse 1. He's handpicked by Jesus himself to lead the church after his ascension, along with the other apostles. And he writes to people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, and he reminds them that we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a summary statement about the life of and the work and the future return of Jesus. There is a person named Jesus who is Lord, uh, meaning a master, uh, someone who has authority over us. To quote Peter's first letter, he is the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Uh, you and I have to answer to him. 
we have to give an account to Jesus for our lives. And that's because Jesus is the Christ, he says. That means he's the long-awaited Messiah. He's the anointed one. He is Emmanuel, God with us, God in human flesh, come to rescue people from their sins. This he did by being born of a virgin, living a sinless life, dying on a cross in payment of our sins, being himself the perfect sacrifice for us that we might be forgiven and have eternal life if only we will believe in him. And the proof that all that is true was that Jesus was raised to life again and ascended to the Father where he now sits on the throne with all authority over heaven and earth. This is what Peter and the apostles made known about the Lord Jesus Christ. And specifically his emphasis here is that this Jesus is coming again in power to judge the world. He's going to wrap everything up. He's going to bring it to its ultimate conclusion, and he's going to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter says. That's referring back to what Jesus said in Mark 13, where he said, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So the apostolic message was that you must put your faith in this Jesus because he's coming again. Those who believe in him, the elect, will be gathered into eternal happiness with him. And those who do not believe will be sent away into eternal punishment. This is what Peter and the apostles made known. But concerning that message, he says, back to verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So apparently, word is going around that what Peter preached about Jesus is a myth. And that he and the other apostles made it all up. It's a fairy tale that they devised to trick people. So you shouldn't listen to it. Pay no attention to what the apostles tell you. It isn't reliable. It isn't true. And so Peter feels like, I've got to address that. Because at this moment in his life, he is awaiting his execution for the preaching of the gospel and believes that this is his last good shot at it to reaffirm the truth of what they heard and saw it's not a myth. Things, have, things haven't changed since the first century, though, have they? <laughs> then, as now, the majority of people in the world would say this message about Jesus is a fairy tale. Uh, that you're wasting your time being a Christian. So how can you know? How can I know? How do we know that we haven't put our ladder up against the, one, the wrong wall? How, how do we know that we're not, we're not uh, just fooling ourselves? Maybe it is a myth. See, we still have the question today, have you banked your hopes on a false religion? Well, <clears throat> what follows is Peter's answer about how you can know that the message about Jesus is the truth. Through verse 21, he makes this case that what we made known to you is true. It is reliable. In fact, it's the authoritative source of knowledge about God and the way of salvation. So let's see his argument, which is twofold. First, 
he tells us that the apostolic message is absolutely true. The apostolic message, what they saw and heard and are relating to us, is true. That's his first part of the argument. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, the reason this whole thing is not a myth, the reason I know it's true, is because we were actually there to witness these things. If this were a court of law, and you were trying to prove the story about Jesus to be true, what would you do? How would you, how would you convince the jury that there really was such a person named Jesus, and that he really did uh, rise from the dead, that he was killed, and so forth? How would you, how would you decide? Well, you'd go and you'd get witnesses. You'd go to get people who have first-hand information, people who were there and can report it, and a number of those witnesses so that you can see whether their testimony uh, agrees or not. We would accept that in a court of law. That's what Peter is doing. He's saying, I was there. We apostles were there. I could tell you that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, that he's God in the flesh, and here's how I know. I saw him one, one night walk on water. <laughs> I was in a boat, and he came from the shore <laughs> walking. You know, people don't do that. <laughs> Not normal people. I also saw him multiply bread and fish and feed 5,000 people from just a, a kid's lunch. I watched that happen. It came out of nowhere. I saw him die on a cross. And then, three days later, I saw him alive again. He had, he had nail scars in his hands. He had a wound in his side. But he was fully alive. We saw him. We, we touched him. We ate, we ate fish with him. <laughs> More than that, I watched him when he ascended into the sky and was hidden by the clouds. I'm telling you, I was an eyewitness. We were eyewitnesses to all of that stuff. You ask any of the 12, actually, there's more than that. He appeared to 500 people at one time. <laughs> then he gives us a specific example of the majesty that he saw and that he heard. He thinks back to the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain when Peter, James, and John were all taken with him to go up. They didn't know for what purpose, but they go up with Jesus on a mountain. And what happens there? Well, he talks about it in verse 17 and 18. When he received glory and honor from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic majesty, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. That account is recorded in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and now here a fourth time. That must be a pretty important thing about Jesus and about who is he. The apostles saw Jesus' face shine like the sun, if you go back to the accounts in the Gospels. His face got bright. His clothes got bright, bright, bright white. Moses and Elijah appeared to him from beyond the grave. They were talking with him. These are the ancient heroes of the faith. These are the, the prophets through whom God delivered his laws and his warnings and his promises to his people. And as they saw Jesus and these men talking, they hear a voice, the voice of the majestic glory, the voice of God saying, 
this is my beloved son. This Jesus here is not like Moses and Elijah. They were definitely speaking my words, but they were fallible men. Jesus is actually God in the flesh. So when he's speaking, God is speaking. Moses and Elijah were speaking for God. Jesus is speaking as God. <laughs> That's majesty. That's We are eyewitnesses of something amazing. This life, this is not just a human life, this is God in the flesh. So what's Peter's first argument about the reliability of the apostolic message? We were eyewitnesses. We were there. Have no doubts about the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is going to happen just as surely as all those other things happened. We know it. That, that's defense number one against people who are saying, well, it's all a myth. But Peter's no fool. He knows somebody might raise an objection at this point. Somebody might say, well, that's fine for you, Peter. But I didn't see or hear any of this myself. So I don't believe you. <laughs> didn't one of your own group say, uh, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe? Didn't one of your own, Thomas, say that? So you will forgive me if I don't believe you, <laughs> because I haven't seen those things. But Peter's ready for that objection, so he moves on to the second argument as to why the message about Jesus is the definitive truth about the way to salvation. He says, the Bible is even more sure than the apostolic message. The Bible is even more sure than the apostolic message. Now that sounds a little bit strange, so I'm going to have to explain what I mean by that. But let me pick up in verse 18 and read into verse 19. Peter, having just talked about the voice, he says, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were there with him on the holy mountain, and we have something more sure, <laughs> more sure than that voice from heaven. What is that? What can be more sure than the voice of the majestic glory? <laughs> Here's what it is. The prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention. So, what's the prophetic word? Well, he's talking about the written word of God. Because he goes on to say, in verse 20 and 21, no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. That's the kind of prophetic word he's talking about. Scripture prophecy written down words that we have in what we now call the Old Testament, they called the Hebrew Bible. He says, these things come not from someone's own interpretation. The prophetic word is of Scripture. It is not produced by the will of man, he says, but men spoke from God. These written prophetic words are also God's words, but we've had them for centuries already written down. And they're even more sure than the word that I'm saying I heard. So Peter's basically saying, what I'm telling you I saw and heard about Jesus is true, but you don't need to rely just on what I say or what any of the apostles say. You can look it up in the book. <laughs> the written prophetic word told us all about Jesus before he ever came. 
I'm just confirming it with my eyewitness report. I'm not saying anything that's inconsistent with what was prophetically written centuries ago. In other words, Peter's testimony is not like that of Joseph Smith or Muhammad, who say they saw a vision and then they founded a religion based on it and say, well, you just have to believe that I had this vision. No, Peter's saying what we heard and saw is consistent with what was originally written centuries ago. The Bible foretold about Jesus as the Savior. We were just fortunate enough to be the witnesses to see it happen, to see it played out. Now, it would take too long to show all the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled by his life, but there are dozens, probably perhaps hundreds. I saw one list that said there's 400. I guess it depends on what you call a prophecy. But lots, let's just put it that way. <laughs> lots and lots of prophecies. And we can't go through all of them, but let me just name a few just to give you a sample for just how much there was, how much information there was, if they could have just gotten their heads wrapped around it. Things that Jesus fulfilled. His virgin birth fulfills Isaiah seven fourteen. Being from the tribe of Judah fulfilled Genesis forty nine ten. That his ministry would be in Galilee fulfills Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. That he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver fulfills Zechariah eleven twelve. That the money would be thrown into the temple and used to buy a potter's field fulfills Zechariah eleven thirteen. That his hands and feet would be pierced fulfills Psalm twenty two sixteen. That the soldiers would gamble for his garments fulfills Psalm twenty two eighteen. That he would rise from the dead fulfills Psalm sixteen ten. The Old Testament is full of prophecies that together paint this detailed picture of who would come into the world as the Savior. And that's why when Jesus walked on the road with the two men after his resurrection, he said, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? In other words, you should have known this would happen. Because the prophets spoke about this. It's all, it's all written there. The written word is sure. It, it, it was necessary because it was written. <laughs> should absolutely be believed in everything it says. And that's what Peter means when he says, we have something more sure. We have something more sure than even our eyewitness testimony. Though that is sure, Though that is reliable, though that is the truth, but we also have the prophetic word, the written down word, that you will do well to pay attention to. Because that is also God's very word. And now we have the true words of the apostles that are added to that written word in the New Testament. Now here's how this speaks to the issue of who, who is the authoritative source of truth about God and salvation. Let's just reason it out. If the Old Testament predicted, what, if what it predicted about Jesus was actually witnessed in its entirety, right down to the last detail, then there is something very unusual about these writings. They must come from a source of knowledge that is beyond mere wisdom. They must be, as Peter says in verses 20 and 21, not the product of someone's own interpretation, nor produced by the will of man. Nobody could get it that right. 
hundreds of years before events actually happen. We can't even say for sure what the weather's going to be like next week, uh, much less what individual people will do next week. How much less what individual people will do hundreds of years from now. Nobody has the ability to decide those things, to know those things. This does not come from the will of man. So where does it come from? It has to come from a mind that sees the end from the beginning. In fact, a, a being that has the power and authority to declare and bring about the end from the beginning, to make sure that it happens. It has to be the product of, verse 21, men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They have to be the very words of God because only God has that kind of power and authority. So listen to Isaiah 46, 9 to 10. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. <laughs> what you have in this Bible is God's very word, his declaration of his purpose and his declaration of how he's going to accomplish his purpose of salvation through his beloved son. That's what you have here. This is his own words. That's why it's the supreme authority. The Bible and the Bible alone is the authoritative source of knowledge about God and salvation because it comes from God. And it includes the eyewitness testimony now of the apostles. But it was all predicted long ago, hundreds of years before them. Now, what does this have to do with the Reformation? <laughs> and with us, 500 years after that. Okay, let's answer that question. What does this have to do with the Reformation? Fast forward to the year 1517. Was the Bible seen by the church or the average church member as the only authoritative source of knowledge about God and salvation? Functionally, no. Certainly it was esteemed. But functionally, what the average parishioner would see is that the church and church tradition was the authoritative source that binds the conscience of the believer and which needs to be obeyed. And I recommend a little, a great little summary of the Reformation called The Unquenchable Flame by Michael Reeves. This is my copy of it right here, uh, where if you want to read about the Reformation, it's a good place to start. Give you a good handle on what the uh, whole thing was about, what caused it. But let me just give you an overview of the times and how the authority of the Bible was questioned in those days. Uh, in those days, there was only one church in Europe, the Roman Catholic Church. There was also the Orthodox Church in Eastern Europe. That had split from the Catholic Church in 1054 AD. But Western and Northern Europe were entirely Catholic, and it is called the Roman Catholic Church because Rome became the official center of Christendom based on a reading of Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus said to Peter, um, 
you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. So Peter's viewed as the rock of Christ's church, and Rome is where the apostle Peter is thought to have been martyred and buried, and so the church was literally built upon him. Furthermore, Peter became to be viewed as the vicar of Christ. That means Christ's representative on earth, the one to whom Christ gave the keys of the church and the supreme office of shepherd of all believers. This pastoral office then was seen as passing on to his successors called popes, which is an affectionate word for papa or father, those popes being based in Rome, a tradition which continues today. Those popes then, as Christ's representatives on earth, had supreme authority over the church at large. So to quote Michael Reeves, the pope was the channel through whom all of God's grace flowed. He had the power to ordain bishops, who in turn could ordain priests, and together they, the clergy, were the ones with the authority to turn on the taps of grace. Those taps were the seven sacraments, baptism, confirmation, the mass, penance, marriage, ordination, and last rites. Thus, the church and its sacraments became the key to experiencing God's grace, overseen by the Pope as the supreme head. Church tradition became the authoritative source that bound the conscience. So you might ask, what about the Bible? Where did that enter into the life of the church attender? Well, in 1517, the church services, or the Mass as it was called, were in Latin, which is a language that nobody knew. The average person did not know it. Add to this the fact that very few Bibles existed among the public, and they also were in Latin. If you could find one, it would probably be in a university library chained to the desk. Martin Luther himself never even saw a Bible until he was over 18 years old, and he grew up in the church. Most people had never seen one. Even as a monk, he could not even have one for private study. Add to this the fact that most people did not know how to read or write. Even if they could get a Bible that they had a language in their own language, they they didn't know how to read it. So basically, the Bible, for all practical purposes, was out of reach for the average person. They had to look to the church and ultimately to the Pope, for all spiritual guidance. And there was no effort by the church to translate the Bible into the common language because they did not think that it should be entrusted to the masses, that it had to be only interpreted by the church. So, who decides the truth in 1517? It's the church, especially the Pope. That's where the functional authority was. That authority began to be questioned for two important reasons. Greek scholars like Erasmus began to find errors in the Latin translation of the Bible, which is called the Vulgate. So if the church was basing their views on a flawed document, it calls into the question the reliability of their views. Second, the church itself had a growing image problem, in part because of blatantly sinful lifestyles by some of the clergy and even the popes and also because of what was called the great schism in the church. At one point, there were three popes simultaneously, all three who were the supreme head and ruler of the church and who all denounced each other. 
and a council was formed to basically depose all three and insert a, a different pope, a fourth pope. So after all that, you've got to ask yourself, which, which, who's got the authority around here? Is it one of the first three guys? Is it the council that removed them, or is it the guy they put in place? So you add to that questions about the authenticity of the translation they were using, and then what's going on in the church itself, and people are starting to wonder, hey, who should we really be listening to? Who's got the truth around here? Enter the Reformers. Started with people like Peter Waldo in the 1100s. He's a man who purchased a Latin Bible at great cost. He read it and he received Christ. And so he began to translate it into his people's language, into French. He also began to speak out about the worldliness he saw in the church. And he was persecuted for that. Then there was John Wycliffe in the 1300s. He, like Waldo, received Christ as he read the scriptures. He began preaching against the sinful lifestyles of some clergy, and he translated the Bible into English. And for that, he was also persecuted. They even dug up his bones 30 years after he was buried, burned them, and threw the ashes into the river because they didn't get a chance to put him on trial as a heretic while he was alive. More reformers arose, challenging the church's practices from the scriptures, and some of them, like John Huss, were burned at the stake. Then at the beginning of the 1500s, Martin Luther came on the scene. He received Christ by studying the Bible. He immediately began to challenge how the church was doing things, eventually challenging its own understanding of what is the gospel, which is what we'll talk about next week. And like those before him, he translated the Bible into the language of his people, which was German. And because of the invention of the printing press, now these Bibles could be widely distributed along with his teachings. So when it's all said and done, once people got exposed to what the scriptures actually say, and they had competent teachers explaining things to them, no longer did they see the church and church tradition and the Pope as the supreme authority. Now they said, it's the word of God. That is the sole authority that can bind my conscience and show me the way to salvation. That's what was recovered. And that's partly why a reformation happened. And a new, renewed Christianity grew up as people started getting contact with the living Word of God. <clears throat> Let me close with one last question. What does this have to do with us? here in 2017. Here's where the application comes in. The reformers suffered and died to recover the functional authority of the Bible, to make sure that it got into the hands of people. The Bible you have in English is owing to their sacrifices. If I could use a modern analogy, they were the freedom fighters of Rogue One delivering the blueprints of the Death Star at the cost of their lives to save the galaxy from the Empire except they were real. <laughs> and what they delivered was this. So that you and I could know the way to life. So what would the Lord have us to do with this word, this Bible that we have that he has given to us at such a cost? Peter tells us in verse 19, you will do well to pay attention to it. 
as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You will do well to pay attention to this written word. Matthew Henry says it this way in his commentary, we are to apply our minds to understand the sense and our hearts to believe the truth of this sure word. Yea, bend ourselves to it that we may be molded and fashioned by it. Plain and simple, don't ignore the word of God in the Bible. Read and meditate on it. Listen carefully when it's being taught. Discuss it with other believers. Let it change the way you live because this word is like a lamp shining in a dark place, according to Peter. Here in these pages is wisdom and understanding for life. Here is comfort. Here is, is strength. Here is what you need to make it through this world. It's like the light in the dark place. You will do well to pay attention to this light. <laughs> it's as much as you would rely on a flashlight as you're walking through a completely pitch dark room. You would do well to turn it on. <laughs> and most importantly, here's why you want to pay attention to it. It's because we get to know Jesus Christ and draw strength from Him. That's what Peter means when he says, pay attention until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The morning star is Jesus. He even describes himself that way in Revelation twenty-two sixteen. And when you know Jesus, it's like a day dawning in your heart. Uh, we use the phrase, it's a new day when we want to communicate that you're coming out of a bad time and into a good time, right? When Jesus rises in your hearts, when you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, it's a new day. There's hope of good things to come, hope of help in this life, hope of eternal life. When he rises in your hearts, that's the effect of paying attention to it. He rises in your hearts. You get to know your God. You grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord, and it's a new day. And Peter would have you and me experience a new day, a light in darkness. And the way we'll do it is when we pay attention to this world, to this word. Friends, in the days of the Reformers, people were deprived of the Bible, and that's why they didn't know the truth. Today, we have it in abundance. But today, we're in danger of depriving ourselves of the truth. We become our own persecutors by leaving it alone and not paying close attention to it. Let's not deprive ourselves of what God has given to us. Let the morning star rise in your hearts as you pay attention. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we at the end of centuries of benefit because of the move that you did in the hearts of people to recover for us. Words spoken from God. Thank you for that. Oh God, help us. May the, may the new day dawn in our hearts. May, we, may Jesus rise in our hearts. May we get to know him more and more.
thank you for the hope that we have in him. In Jesus' name, amen.